BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss how to beat FOMO, the fear of missing out. How do you overcome the emotional barriers and fears of missing out and saying no to things? How do you get over the awful feeling of turning down people and opportunities? We share simple, actionable strategies for you to say yes to yourself and for you to say yes to what's really important and what actually matters in your life. We share a great strategy that you can use to make a huge difference in your life in two minutes or less. And we dig into the important concept that in a world drunk on speed, slowness can be a superpower. All that and much more with our guest, Carl Honore. I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. 
Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we discussed cutting-edge brain hacks that sound like they're straight out of science fiction. Is it possible to use technology to rapidly change the structure of your brain? How does your brain actually learn? What is neuroplasticity and why is it so important? What are the key things that you can do in your life to improve your brain health, memory, and your performance? We discussed all of this along with a truly innovative technology that may be the key to unlocking super performance and massively accelerating your learning with our previous guest, Dr. Daniel Chow. Now for our interview with Carl. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Carl Honore. Carl is a best-selling author, broadcaster, and the creator of The Slow Movement. His TED Talk on the benefits of slowing down has been viewed more than two and a half million times. He's spoken all over the world to audiences ranging from business leaders and entrepreneurs to teachers, academics, and medical practitioners. He's the author of In Praise of Slow, Under Pressure, The Slow Fix, and most recently, Boulder. His books have been translated in over 35 languages, and he's been on the bestseller list of many different countries. Carl, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks very much, Matt. Good to be with you. Well, we're really excited to have you on the show today. Uh, we're big fans of, of your work and your message, so I can't wait to dig in and share some of these ideas with the audience. Looking forward to it. To begin, I'd love to start just with the idea of slowness. And you know, the funny thing is your original TED Talk in the book came out almost 15 years, I guess 15 years ago at this point, 2004, 2005 area. And yet, the world, if anything, since then has, at least from my perspective, probably sped up even more. And people are so obsessed with speed. You know, if you thought they were obsessed with speed in 2005, it's probably another level today. How do you think about the obsession that our society has with speeding up and trying to condense everything and, and, and do so much so quickly? Well, I do think that over the last 15 years, in many ways, the society has accelerated, that the, our experience of time has shrunk in a way that feeling of every moment of the day being a dash to the finish line that we never ever ever seem to reach i think is even more acute now than it was when my first book came out but i'm an optimist and i've been at the center of this slow culture quake now for a decade and a half and i i see a whole other side to the equation there's a, another countercurrent of people of all stripes raising the flag of slowness and saying okay things are getting faster that actually means we need to reconnect with our inner tortoise, if you like, more urgently than ever before. And I look back now to when my first book came out all those years ago, and I mean, I'm just amazed by how far this slow idea has spread across the globe. And it's really infiltrated pretty much every field of human endeavor. There are now movements for, you know, you name it, from slow travel, slow fashion through slow sex, slow technology, slow architecture, slow education, slow food, of course, was there at the outset. It seems to me that we've got the two tracks going here. One is the acceleration of everything. And at the same time, this countercurrent for slowing things down. Where that will go, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know at what point we'll reach a stage when we actually stop trying to accelerate everything obsessively and start embracing the idea that sometimes slower is better because of course this whole slow philosophy is not some wild extremist fundamentalist 
reaction. You know, I, I love speed, right? I'm not, I'm not anti-fast. Sometimes faster is better. We all know that this slow creed is about doing things at the right speed. So understanding that, sure, there are times to be fast, but there are also times to slow things down and that there are lots of different rhythms and paces and speeds and velocities and tempos to play with in between. I think to me, slow is a, it's a mindset. It's about doing, you know, quality over quantity. It's about doing one thing at a time, which is so wildly against the zeitgeist of the moment. It's ultimately about doing things not as fast as possible, but as well as possible. And in its essence, at its core, that's a very simple idea, a revolutionary one. So once you take that idea of trying to arrive at each moment, striving to live that moment or do that task as well as possible instead of as fast as possible, then everything changes and everything gets a whole lot better, which is why I feel much less like a voice in the wilderness today than I did 15 years ago, because more and more people in every walk of life are waking up to the folly of doing everything in fast forward and increasingly looking for ways to slow down. And that's from, you know, Silicon Valley and Wall Street, some of the fastest places on earth to some of the slowest, you know, yoga retreats and everyone in between, I think, is waking up to the need to find another gear, right? A slower gear. Well, I think that's a great point, this idea that sometimes faster is better, but also sometimes it's really important to slow down as well. Exactly. And, and I stress that this is something that applies to absolutely everything. I'll give you an example. Even in the workplace, I mean, we think of the workplace as being, and I think possibly rightly, the hardest nut to crack when it comes to selling the idea that slower is sometimes better. You know, it's woven into our business vernacular. We talk about you snooze, you lose, the early bird catches the worm, lunches for wimps, you know, all these phrases that come bombarding at us from every angle that reinforce the idea that faster is the only way forward. There's only one gear at work and that gear is turbo. And if you slow down your roadkill, but increasingly people are waking up and realizing that actually you need to slow down at work. And there was a big survey done by the Economist magazine recently where they investigated the pace of the modern workplace. And the Economist you know, they crunch the numbers, they go through the data, they get down into the trenches, and they really look at what's happening out there. And the economist came to a very clear conclusion. The final two lines, in fact, of that survey from the Economist magazine were, forget frantic acceleration, mastering the clock of business means choosing when to be fast and when to be slow, right? And there it is in a nutshell, the slow philosophy in action in the workplace. And that's The Economist magazine, right? It's not Buddhist Monthly and it's not Acupuncture Weekly, right? It's the in-house Bible of the go-getters, the most ambitious, entrepreneurial, successful, and maybe even type A people on the planet. And they are coming to the same conclusion that I came to years ago and that more and more people are arriving at, which is that slowness has a role to play in the 21st century. You know, you need different gears. You can't just have one gear. You said something a minute ago as well that made me think of, of this idea of slowing down and doing things, I'm probably going to paraphrase you, but doing things right or doing things well, I think is what you said, as mm -hmm. opposed to just doing them as quickly as possible. And that made me think of, I don't know if you've ever read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, but it really makes me think of that idea of quality from that book, which is a really important and powerful theme. Yeah, I read that book many moons ago, and it does echo through this slow revolution. It's very much... People use different language to describe often the same thing. It's about being present or in the moment or something as simple as doing one thing at a time instead of multitasking your way through stuff. And, and ultimately, it is about reestablishing quality before quantity. And it's, it's tricky for us because we live in a world that has become a smorgasbord, an enormous, infinite buffet of things to do, eat, 
consume experience. And the natural human instinct is to want to do it all, right? To have it all, right? To just wolf your way right through that buffet. And that makes it difficult for us to enjoy. And we all have that experience of being at a buffet, eating too fast, eating too much, not really enjoying it, coming out feeling a little bit stomach achy. And I think that's a metaphor a little bit for the way we live much of our lives. We just gorge. We're always trying to cram more and more into less and less time. And that backfires because it means that we are racing through our lives instead of living them. We're putting quantity before quality. And I think increasingly that's why people are saying, whoa, I'm not actually living this. I'm just racing and rushing through it. And I think because the taboo against slowness is so deep and so pervasive and so powerful and so toxic, it can make it difficult for us to slow down. We can feel that awful gorging sensation, but then we carry on doing it. You know, we, we keep on going fast. We keep on squeezing more and more into our planners because we're we're appalled by the very idea of slow. It's a dirty word. It's slow is a four-letter word in our culture. It's pejorative. It's a byword for lazy, stupid, unproductive, boring, all the things nobody wants to be. And I think that, that taboo means that even when we yearn to slow down, even when we can feel in our bones it would be good for us to put on the brakes just once in a while, we don't do it because we feel ashamed or guilty or afraid or just we've lost the habit, you know, inertia. Such a great perspective and a way to think about it. I love the analogy of a buffet and, and endlessly stuffing yourself because life is filled with infinite options, infinite opportunities, so many things that are interesting and exciting. And I mean, I feel this pull every single day. There's so much I want to do, so much I want to read, mm. so much I want to experience. And it's hard to cut back and make those choices and make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, we've turned that fact that it's hard into an acronym. We talk about FOMO, right? <laughs> this awful itching fear of missing out, right? And I think that's very much a kind of, I mean, it really sums up a lot of where we are now. We're just constantly running like hamsters on a wheel, trying not to miss out on the next thing. But of course, the the tart and terrible irony <laughs> is that by becoming a hamster on the wheel and trying to squeeze more and more into every minute, we are actually missing out. We're trying to do way too many things. We end up doing them poorly, not enjoying them, burning ourselves out and skimming the surface of life rather than digging deep and getting down into the core and the heart of the matter. And people often say to me, well, hmm, you know, I, I can feel that I would love to slow down, but I can't slow down, right? If I slow down, life will pass me by. But the opposite is true. You know, life is actually what's happening right here right now. And if you don't slow down, then you will pass it by. So it's in a way, this whole kind of slow philosophy is about flipping that round and bringing a different filter to the modern world and saying, well, you know, the modern world is a wonderful thing. I'm not some kind of Luddite who wants to throw away iPhones and have people living on communes. You know, I love so much about the modern world. And I think there's, it, it can actually be immensely enriching and fun and productive and so on. But only if we bring the right spirit to the table, right? And to me, that spirit is this slow idea that you say, okay, the world is this infinite buffet, but I cannot do it all. I'm going to focus on the two or three things that light me up, you know, that put real fire in my belly, that have proper meaning for me. And then I'm going to, you know, give my time and my full time and attention to those things. I mean, this idea of missing out, even in the workplace, you know, people are trying chronically to do too much and it's backfiring and on them on their quality of life, on their health and their relationships, but it's also making them less effective, right? I mean, there's a wonderful quote, I think, which is 
also a reflection of this slow th- rethink that's going on from Warren Buffett, you know, the legendary investor. He once said the difference between successful people and very successful people is very successful people say no to almost. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's everything, right? You know, in my book, In Praise of Slow, could easily have been called In Praise of No, right? You know, because we've got to bring back the art of saying no, of drawing lines in the sand and saying up to here and no further so that the things that we do do, we get the most out of, right? That's a great quote from Buffett. It reminds me of another really good quote from another hedge fund billionaire, Ray Dalio, which is, you can have anything you want in life, but you can't have everything. And yes. that, you yeah. know, that, that makes me think of this idea of saying, no, how do we start to overcome the emotional barrier, the fear, the resistance of saying no to things? It's not easy. I'm not some... Pollyanna, utopian, these things take a long time to get over, right? I think that we are marinated in this culture of speed and we're completely infested with the idea that there's only one answer to these questions, which is yes, and you can never say no. So it's it's a process, right? So whenever you're overcoming any kind of addiction, and I, I don't use that word lightly, I do think we're addicted to speed, to distraction, to stimulation, to doing more and more all the time. It's a process, right? It's baby steps. You've got to take steps and then maybe you'll have two steps forward. You might have one step back. I always recommend that people do run little trial and error projects, right? So rather than saying tomorrow, I'm going to morph into the Dalai Lama, or I'm going to live that Warren Buffett quote or the Dalio quote in every moment of my life for the rest of my days on the earth. I mean, that's just not going to happen. You've got to nudge yourself there gently and know that sometimes you're going to fall off the wagon and then you're going to get back on again. So maybe, you know, start off with a plan next week to, Take one thing off your to-do list every day, you know, just one thing. You'd be surprised how easy it is to do that. Often our to-do list looks like it needs more hours to get more stuff in, but actually often we're just stuffing it with filler, right? Stop, pause, think what's really important to you and let one thing go a day. Put that on a not to-do list. And at the end of the week, look back and see, well, what did that feel like? Did that work? Did the sky fall in because I said no once a day? And then often it's helpful as well to have that not to-do list in your back pocket. Look at it you know, a month later, because often in the moment when we say no to something, we do have that awful strangulating panic that you think, oh no, I can't say no. This is, I'll lose this relationship. This job will go up in smoke. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll fail. I'll fall behind. The end of the world is nigh. You know, if I say no, when in fact, it's just the panic of the moment. If you look at the not to do list, the thing you did say no to today, four weeks from now and think back, you'll think, well, why did I worry so much about it? I'd forgotten about that thing anyway. It wasn't that important. So sometimes giving yourself that bigger perspective time-wise, looking back on the moment later can help you reset, reboot yourself, relearn that art of using time more wisely so that you're not constantly falling into that trap of saying yes, 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 becoming a yes man or a yes woman. Nobody likes or admires a yes man or a yes woman. Yet in a way, we are all, we've all become yes men and yes women, right? Because we're just constantly saying yes, more, 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 and, and then more. And bringing back something you said a few minutes ago, which is so important to underscore all of this, if you don't say no to some things, you end up slowly 
diluting and diluting and diluting and ruining, impairing your experience of everything ultimately. And only by saying no to what really matters and what's really important can we start to carve out the space and the experience for the really rich, meaningful things that are beyond, as you put it, just the surface of life. Exactly. And in fact, what we're talking about there is reframing. In a way, you're not saying no, or you are saying no, but in saying no, what you really do is, is saying yes to something else. So you're saying no to something that four weeks from now, you probably won't even remember anyway, to something in the now that is immensely important to you that you may remember four or five years, you know, decades from now. And so I think that may be another way to unpack this problem with no that we have is to say, well, maybe this isn't a no or to have an addendum. You sort of say no in a gentle, polite way to the person, but then explain why you're saying no. You know, I'm I'm not going to attend this work event or I'm not going to go out on this social outing. Why? Not because I'm suddenly a, a rude and, you know, angry hermit, but because I'm saying yes to reading bedtime stories to my children, you know, or I'm saying yes to going to read something that will make me a better employee next week or next, you know, I think if we balance out that equation by not stopping with the no, but going to the next stage and saying, I'm saying no, but I'm also actually at the same time saying yes, I'm saying yes to good things. And of course, again, I think it's so important to think long term. I mean, nobody lies in their deathbed and looks back and thinks, I wish I'd spent more time on Facebook or I wish I spent more time in the office or, you know, and yet all of those things that are vacuuming up so many hours in our day, so many days in our lives, so many, so much of our time, right? Our things are not that important in the long run. And and then a big part of slowing down, I think is pushing pause and saying, okay, I'm going to take a deep breath, maybe four or five deep breaths, and I'm going to start thinking perhaps for the first time in years about what's really important to me. You know, what am I going to remember and cherish on my deathbed when I look back and try to give those things your full time and attention. And the other stuff that you know will not be on your radar, certainly will not be part of your <laughs> your deathbed conversation at the end. You know, try to phase those things out however much as possible. Obviously, some things we do now are not that important later on. And, you know, not every moment can be charged with, you know, deep resonant meaning. Of course, that would be exhausting and probably ultimately a little bit boring, too. You know, you need to have some moments that aren't that important. But let's try and get the needle more towards the middle where we have more time, more presence, more energy, right? More love for the things that are really important to us than the stuff that we won't remember and that's not actually that important. And in some sense, by saying no, or rather by not saying no, what you're really saying no to is yourself and the things that matter to you. And we end up putting ourselves off, putting our really important goals off by saying yes to other people when the most important and most powerful thing we can do is say no to them so we can say yes to ourselves. Exactly. And so often what happens is that we carry on saying no to ourselves and yes to everyone else until we we burn out. We hit a wall, right? And maybe we have some kind of health collapse or a relationship goes up or some crisis hits us. And usually after that kind of burnout moment, when you hit rock bottom, we come back to our world and our lives. That's when we start saying yes to ourselves, right? That's a terrible way to learn that lesson. You know, much better to learn that lesson before you crash and burn and hit the brick wall and start gently, step by step, reconfiguring, rejigging so that you're saying more yes to yourself or not necessarily to yourself because that can sound a little selfish and solipsistic. You know, yes to what's important and more no to the stuff that's filler. And let's be honest, so much of this stuff, if you just pull out your calendar or whatever and look back over the last couple of months, I mean, how much of that stuff really was that important? I mean, 
very little, I think, for most of us. And yet we all have this sense that we're constantly racing the clock. We, you know, how can we slow down? We actually need more time, right? To squeeze more stuff in. Hmm. Generally speaking, not if we're honest with ourselves. Such great perspective. I want to come back to something you touched on earlier, this study from The Economist. And this is a related topic, but I think a distinct subset of this, which I'm a huge proponent of, is this idea that often, and Warren Buffett is another great example of somebody who does this, but often taking the time to slow down, to think, to read, to have what I like to call contemplative routines in your life where you just have space to learn and think and journal, those are some of the most powerful and most effective things you can do from a business perspective. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we've this people have always known this the most creative minds the people who've got stuff done throughout human history have always understood the importance of moments of quiet stillness reflection whether they're journaling or going for a walk i mean it's just the human beings are not built to be stuck always in roadrunner mode we know we there's the tortoise and the hare and we, we we have a bit of both and you need that tortoise mode you need the slow mode moments in order to come back to the faster moments more engaged switched on, sharper, better able to cope. And that's something that, I mean, the science is showing us that very, very clearly. I mean, the one metaphor that I like best is all the work has been done on meditation now that they've shown that, you know, we know that meditation reduces feelings of stress and sharpens concentration and can boost well-being. But, but it turns out that it also begins to rewire the brain in the sense that it creates more density in the cerebral cortex, the gyrification, in other words, goes up. And it turns out that when you have more folds in your cerebral cortex, thanks to meditation, you can actually process information faster, right? So people who slow down with meditation are better able to cope with the fast-moving world, everything spinning around at 100 miles an hour around you than those who never slow down at all, right? Which I think is a a very stark way of underlining this basic message of all the work I've been doing for the last 15 years, which is that in order to thrive in a fast world, you have to slow down sometimes, right? Or put it another way, in a world obsessed, drunk on speed, slowness is a superpower. That's such a powerful way to put it. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it's it's absolutely one of my own superpowers, one of the most important lessons I've ever learned and implemented and I practiced every single day in my life is carving out the space and the time to be contemplative and to slow down and to think. And it's funny because so many people are stuck in a state of permanent reactivity, as you called it, roadrunner mode, essentially. And yet, if you even just get five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes a day, or even once a week, what I found is that period starts to create leverage and expand itself. So if you have 20 minutes where you stop and think, well, what am I doing and why am I doing it and what's really important, then you start to change your behavior and then you start to get more and more time that you can actually dedicate towards those things. Yeah. I mean, this is what you find about, I think of this as one of the delicious side effects of slowing down. You can start small and then it begins to percolate and filter into the rest of your life and it becomes almost like a mindset. So in that you have those slow moments where you're in a quiet place, probably you're looking inside, you're reflecting, you're mulling, you're letting ideas play around in the back. But then that kind of inner calm that you cultivate allows you to navigate and negotiate all of the fast stuff when you come back to it much more serenely, right? So I think of it as the delicious paradox of slow, that by slowing down, sometimes not only do we get better results, but sometimes you get them faster. I mean, you can actually do things more quickly if you've got the slow. It's that gear shifting that goes on it. And another thing that's important to underline here is that I think when people hear about 
slowing down and the benefits it can bring you in a fast world, they think, oh, no, goodness me, that means I've got to go off to a Tibetan monastery and meditate for nine hours and stuff. And they think it's going to have to be massive amounts of slowness. But in fact, often it's just a small injection of slowness can make a huge difference in your day, your week, you know, your year. And there's one example of a study that I wrote about in my book, The Slow Fix, found that when people in the workplace are confronted by a complex problem, if they take two minutes to think about it, two minutes to, you know, rotate it, look at it from different sides, hold it up to the light, think about it, something shifts in the brain. The brain moves beyond it almost like it short circuits some of those biases that are built in the confirmation bias all those ones that people will have read about you know in, in psychology magazines that those biases that are built into the brain that push us towards solutions we've seen before low-hanging fruit and you kind of move past that state with two minutes of just thinking to finding bigger more complex better solutions to a problem and again i come back to this point that that's two minutes right it's not two days, two hours, you know, it's just two minutes, right? 120 seconds could make a big, big difference. And that's a little hack that anyone can apply pretty much in any job. You can find and carve out two minutes to think over a big problem before you hit send or before you react. You know, this is part of the problem now. The culture is all about reaction rather than reflection. And we can bring back reflection because we have those muscles. They may have atrophied because we've become unaccustomed to using them, but they're still there. And all of us can, with a bit of practice and a bit of discipline, can bring them back and get those muscles firing again in the workplace, but you know, elsewhere as well. It's not just about boosting productivity. Well, it's funny because the productivity example is essentially a corollary of the same kind of paradox that we discussed earlier, which is this idea that if you end up trying to do everything, you end up essentially missing everything. Similarly, yeah. if you're if you're constantly in a state of reactivity, you actually end up achieving less. And when you slow down, you get more done. Yeah. And that's again, that's what I call the delicious paradox of slow. We all have that experience in the workplace, don't we? Every office has got that person who's a whirling dervish of activity, rushing around, breathless, always on the move, multitasking, seeming to, and yet very often that's the person who gets the least done, right? You know, when you really want something done, it's often the quiet, on the surface, slow person that people turn to who will get the stuff done, right? And get it done well. And I think many of us will have that experience. I mean, and let's talk about multitasking, right? I mean, we're, you pick up job applications now and often you'll just see that word sprinkled all across them you know we're looking for a multitasker multitasking a must all this stuff it's on a pedestal up there is almost kind of talismanic quality you need to have to thrive in the modern workplace when in fact it's nonsense right the human brain cannot cannot multitask and that's i know there might be some women out there thinking who's this guy mansplaining no human brains cannot think meaningfully about two things at the same time when we're multitasking at work or wherever what we're doing is toggling. We're juggling back and forth between tasks. So task one might get, I don't know, five seconds of your attention. Then, er, you know, you're back over there to task two and that gets 10 seconds. Then you're over task three and you're back to ta And guess what? All of that cognitive gear grinding is just as wasteful as it sounds. If you take two people, the fast multitasker versus let's call that other person, the slow monotasker who does one thing at a time wherever possible and focuses on average, the fast multitasker will take up to twice as long and they make up to twice as many mistakes as the slow person. So there again, you know, there's the science telling us that slower is better, right? That slower is often the way to go. There's an old military adage which gets at the heart of this, I think. It says, slow is 
smooth and smooth is fast. Right? And I think that nails it a little bit in the workplace. And a lot of us, I think, will understand that. We'll know that intuitively. That's the case. That's so funny. I've literally written that quote down. That's one of my favorite quotes. And I was going to bring that up and share it. But it's really funny that you brought it up as well, because it's such a great quote and really encapsulates the essence of this entire idea. It does. I love the language of it too, smooth, because there's something about slow. And I'm talking about slow with a capital S. When you're moving back between different speeds, you're doing things at the right tempo, what musicians call the tempo justo, the correct rhythm and the correct tempo for the moment. And even as I'm talking to you now, I'm, I'm my hands are moving through the air. It's like a dance, right? And in a sense, that's really what this slow revolution is about. It's about getting the right tempo. So moving up and down the scale. Sometimes you're fast, sometimes a little slower. You're present. Whatever speed you're at, you're there. And it's it's a dance. And and when you find yourself moving dance-like between fast and slow and across the different tempos and speeds, that's when the music and the magic really happen, whether it's the workplace, relationships, food, whatever it is. If you're in that zone, that kind of, you use the word zen, I mean, you could, there's so many different words for it. I, I My word is slow for it. If you're in that kind of slow place where you're present, you're there, you're at the right speed, you forget the clock, it feels like swimming. It's like dancing. And that's why I love that quote that, that they talk about slow being smooth. It is smooth. There's a smoothness to it. I've always thought of it from the analogy, and I've heard that it's from the sniper core that when you're looking down the scope of a rifle and you have this magnification, if you move really slowly, you can line up with your target exactly. But if you're jerking from place to place, you're going to be constantly missing and you're never going to get there. And it actually takes more time to try and jerk around than if you just slowly set yourself. Yeah, I've heard that too. And in fact, that makes me think of another way of unpicking this whole question of pace and what it does to us if we get the wrong speed going is that the, the scope, you know, you're in focus or you're out of focus. It's sharp or it's blurry. And one of the things that we sacrifice on the altar of speedaholism, doing everything faster, is memory, right? When everything is moving too fast, when you're moving through your life too fast, nothing sticks. Everything becomes a blur. Everything is out of focus and nothing remains with you. And that's one of the reasons why I think when we're in roadrunner mode and we're living way too fast for, for our own selves, we don't remember stuff. You know, you get to the end of 2000 and whatever, 18, and you, your head hits the pillow and you look back and you think, whoa, can't remember anything. I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. I, you know, nothing sticks. And one of the things that I noticed when I slowed down and began doing fewer things, but doing those things, you know, really well and, and being present and enjoying them was that I began remembering things more. And Milan Kundera, in fact, has a, he talks about the, the intimate bond between memory and slowness. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, that, I mean, memory is such an important part of the human experience and building up our sense of identity and, and so much, it brings so much pleasure memory to be able to look back and relive moments, your own highlight reel. And if you're moving through so fast that you haven't got a highlight reel, then that's another downside, let's say, to this whole fast forward culture that we're apparently stuck in. Hey, I'm here real quick with confidence expert, Dr. Aziz Gazapura to share a lightning round insight with you. Dr. Aziz, how can people say no more often and stop people pleasing? This is not only important to figure out how to do, but to start practicing immediately because most people don't realize their anxiety, their stress, their overwhelm is often a result of not saying no. And so here are some quick tips on how to start doing that. 
first of all, imagine right now in your life, where would you benefit from saying no? Where do you feel overloaded, pressured, overwhelmed? Even if intellectually you're telling yourself you should, tune into your heart, tune into your body. Where do you feel, I don't want to? Start paying attention to that, start honoring that. The next tip is to imagine saying no, and then notice how you feel, because you're probably gonna feel all kinds of good stuff, right? Guilt, fear, what are they gonna think? I don't wanna let this person down. And what you wanna do is, before you go say no to them, you wanna work through that, you wanna address that, you wanna get it on paper. Can I say this? Why can't I say this? Why? What's stopping me from doing this? Do a little prep work so you can really just practice it. And then the third and most important step, of course, is gonna be to go say no, and start saying no liberally. Start saying no regularly. In fact, after listening to this, Find an opportunity today to say no, because the more you do it, like anything else, like any sub skill of confidence, the more you do it, the easier it will become and the freer you'll become in your life. Do you want the confidence to say no and boldly ask for what you deserve? Sign up for Dr. Aziz's Confidence University by visiting successpodcast.com slash confidence. That's successpodcast.com slash confidence and start saying no today. Well, I want to get into more around memory and how do we then talk about your new project and how that deals with aging and identity and all these things. But there's one other thing before we tap into that that I wanted to talk about, which is just something that's, again, a corollary, but a distinct bucket of this same topic, which I love the title of your previous book, The Slow Fix, because we're in a world today where so many people are looking for the quick fix. They're looking for, Mm -hmm. you know, I call it get rich quick schemes and they're always trying to find it. And yet the reality is that's usually the worst possible path that you can take. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, there is no one step to a flat belly there, you know, no, nobody ever cured a broken relationship with a box of chocolates or solved Middle Eastern peace process with an airstrike, right? These, these duct tape solutions, they just, I mean, invariably what we end up doing is treating the symptoms of a problem in a short-term way, rather than getting down into the core and the root of the problem. And as you say, there's nothing worse than a quick fix in a sense, because it just delays and lets the problem fester and get worse than it was, because it gives a false sense of security, or it, it gives us a sense that we have solved the problem when truly we haven't. You know, We've just kind of papered over the symptoms a little while before it all blows up in our face again. And my argument in the, the slow fix book is that you know we need to flip that round. At the moment we say to ourselves, well, we're all so rushed, we say, well, we haven't got time for a slow fix. We only have time for a quick fix. But the truth is that we always have time, don't we? Later on, when the quick fix of today blows up in our faces, we always find the time and the money to put it right later on, you know, to pick up the pieces. And what I'm saying with this idea of the slow fix is why don't we just flip that equation around and instead of waiting till it all goes horribly wrong later on, why don't we invest the time and the money now? to start getting to a real solution in the here and now rather than booting it downfield and trying to deal with it later when invariably it takes much more time and much more money in the medium and longer term. Yeah, so with that book, I'm looking at how we apply this idea across everything from business to relationships to to medicine and yeah. But that it's such an important idea, this idea that energy is essentially wasted on the search and the implementation of a quick fix when in reality, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And it's so much easier to spend that time on the front end, actually doing it right, doing it well, having a focus on quality, as we talked about earlier, as opposed to just rushing from quick fix to quick fix. 
I mean, that's so much the case. And it's, I mean, it's heartbreaking really sometimes to see the waste that we, we endure because of this quick fix culture. I mean, you see it in politics all the time with politicians firing off this initiative or this new scheme or this thing. And, you know, and then when eventually, you know, six months later or a year later, we taught up what it all cost us. It just makes you want to weep. You know, if someone had just said, hang on, let's just stop, take some time to think hard, to join up the dots, to talk to people, to bring people up, and let's get a real solution that actually might work rather than a Band-Aid, you know, because a Band-Aid, you know, if you need deep surgery, a Band-Aid is not the solution, right? It's just going to cost you a whole lot more time and money later on and a lot more pain as well. So let's dig into, I want to talk a little bit about your new project, Boulder. How did you come to wanting to write and think about this idea? And what is it? Well, my my books always seem to start. I've realized now with some kind of personal epiphany moment where I where I realize that I've just lost my bearings a bit and something's not right in my own head and my own my own life. And I, for me, the spark for writing Boulder was I was at a hockey tournament. I'm a big hockey player, and I was 48 years old at the time. And you know, I was lead scorer at the tournament. I was doing playing really well, and I scored a kind of goal that you don't score very often off a face off, and led my team into the semifinals. And I was, you know, walking on air until I discovered just after the quarterfinals that I was the oldest player at this tournament of 240 players. And for some reason, that knowledge just, I don't know, it was like getting cross-checked in the face. I don't know. It just knocked me off balance. And I began to hear all kinds of questions. I began thinking, well, should I be here? Are people laughing at me? Am I too old to play the sport I love and still play well and have played my whole life? Maybe I should take up bingo. And it, it was just suddenly, I don't know, my the number the age number itself suddenly took on a terrible power and I wanted to understand why and whether it deserved that power. So I, I kind of sat with this idea of what does it mean to be aging in a world that's enthralled to youth, you know, this cult of youth, younger is better. We're always being told and getting older sucks. And that seems to be the whole kind of narrative that we're, we're brought up with. And I just wanted to kind of unpack that a bit and see if it was true. And, and I found out that it's not I mean, I mean, what I discovered through, you know, a couple of years of research and writing is that, of course, we all know that some things, you know, we do lose something as we grow older, but many, many things stay the same and actually other things get better. And that was, it was that mixed picture that I kind of wanted to take to the world. And, and that's kind of what Boulder is about. It's about saying, you know what, there are many, many things to look forward to as you grow older, whether you're in your twenties, right? Or your thirties. I mean, we evolve, we change with every decade, but it need not be a downhill spiral from wherever, you know, 30 or 35 or wherever people are drawing the line nowadays, you know, that it's much more complex than that. And there's, there's a whole good news story to talk about aging, especially now. And when it seems to me we're entering a golden age of aging, you know, it's never been a better time in human history to grow older, you know, to, to be over 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or even over a hundred nowadays. So that was, um, I guess, let me reframe it in a sense. My first three books took on the cult of speed. So I was arguing with them that Faster is not always better. With Boulder, what I'm doing is taking on the cult of youth, and I'm arguing that younger is not always better. So tell me about a couple of the positive benefits of getting older. Sure. Well, one thing that totally blew me away, and I hadn't even wasn't even on my radar at all, is is that people actually get happier as they get older. You know, I think the the story that the culture tells us is that old people are unhappy, you know, cranky old woman, grumpy old man, all those tropes we have in the culture. But in fact, across most cultures, there there is what is called the U-shaped happiness curve, that we start off happy in childhood, and then it kind of goes down into our 
30s and 40s and bottoms out somewhere in our 40s and maybe 50, but then goes up again. And in fact, across most cultures, across all age groups, sorry, not age groups, um, income groups, culture, ethnic backgrounds, the age cohort reports the highest levels of life satisfaction, happiness are the over 55s and over 60s, right? Which seems to me to go completely against everything that I, as a card carrying ageist, I've got to admit it, I had a really bad view of growing older. You know, there's a whole other thing going on, which is that people find a kind of ease with themselves. Like you, people find that they make peace with themselves and more comfortable in our own, our own skin as we grow older. I think that feeds into the happiness thing. We worry less about what other people think about us. There's a freedom. There's a lightness that comes as we we get older, I think, a confidence. I mean, there's a wonderful quote from Anne Landers, the legendary agony aunt, who said once that at 20, we worry about what other people think of us. At 40, we stop worrying about what other people think of us. And at 60, we realize they were never thinking about us at all, right? And I, I think that gets at something that happens as you kind of move through 40s, 50s, and further on, you know, into the second half of life, that there is a kind of lightness. You're not tiptoeing around other people's expectations. You're just, you can take life by the scruff of the neck and and define what life is going to be for you. And that's why so many people walk away from jobs they've hated, you know, relationships that haven't worked from and, and reinvent themselves, I think, later on, because there's that feeling of confidence and just not worrying about what other people think and just getting on with making the most of what are now our longer lives. Another thing that gets better as we get older is, I mean, <laughs> believe it or not, I mean, productivity. I mean, this is another thing we, you know, the, all this awful language we use uh, we talk about, you know, finished at 40 and, you know, all these people struggling to get job interviews after the age of sometimes 35 in some sectors, but, you know, certainly after 40, when in fact, actually people get a lot better at their jobs as they get older. And, and that the science, the research is all there to show this, that productivity, especially in jobs that rely on any kind of social skills, which is most jobs nowadays, people tend to get better. You know, the productivity goes up, creativity holds strong and can get can get stronger as we grow older. We become less obsessed with ourselves. There's a kind of altruism that often kicks in in later life. There's just so many, so many things that are sunny side up, you know, in later life. And, you know, whether that's over 35, 40 or 50 or even older, it's, there's something to look, much to look forward to, which in a culture that's always telling us that, you know, you're done and it's, you're over the hill, all these dreadful expressions, you're the wrong side of 40, you know, it's just all there. It's in our vernacular, but if it's actually untrue, a lot of it. Very interesting. And I love the positive outlook on that. How do you think about aging and, and how it relates to mortality? Well, I think one reason we find aging and always have done a tricky venture, right? It's, it scares us in some ways is that the end point of aging is death, right? Mortality. And nobody, you know, it's a reminder, every creaky joint, every gray hair is a reminder that the grim reaper is, is coming for us, right? That we're going to check out that time is, is finite. I guess the question is, what do you do with that? Right? Do you feel downtrodden and depressed that you only have so much time here? Or does the opposite happen? Do you think, well, I've got a finite amount of time. I'm going to make the most of the time I have now. And that was one thing I found really interesting in the research for the book is that two things. One is that as people get older, they tend to become less afraid of death, and which seems counterintuitive. You think, well, the closer it is, the more scary, but actually the opposite seems to be true. Again, across all cultures, people become less afraid of dying as they get closer to the end. And this is especially the case as you get to the very final lap, usually for people. So that's one thing for, you know, if you've got listeners who are in their 20s thinking, oh my, you know, death. well, actually that's one thing, the burden of it becomes less as you grow older. The other thing 
I want to put on the table here is that in our culture, we've kind of pushed death away. We don't, you know, we see it on Netflix crime series and stuff, but we don't, it's not in our daily lives much. It's people often die in hospitals now. We don't see dead bodies very much. You know, there's a kind of, it's sort of walled off and pushed away from us. But there's a benefit to thinking about dying, to be aware of mortality, which is why every great religion, you know, whether Buddhism or Hindu, they've all got sort of death meditations, the whole idea of thinking about mortality. The point being not to make you morbid and depressed about the fact that you only have so many years on this earth, but actually to make you cherish the time that you do have here. And I think that one of the benefits of being around older people, being around death, thinking about our own aging, is that we then confront the whole idea of mortality more. And if we use that wisely, it can help us make the more make the most of the time you know we have now, whether we're in our 20s or 30s, 40s, whatever. If you're aware that you've only got so much time, you think, well, I'm going to make the most of this here and now. So I feel that it's part of this, I don't want to say rebranding because that sounds cheesy, but kind of bringing back a celebration of aging and embracing of it, embracing of it's the rough and the smooth. Part of that has to be embracing mortality and making mortality part of our calculus when we think about our lives and looking at the long term and so on. Great insight. And, and, you know, obviously everyone's getting older, but as someone who's now, you know, getting older and older and, you know, it's great to have a different perspective on on thinking about dealing with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to say that I've got a very clear before and after, right, for, for this book, Boulder. I was somebody who was either denying my own aging or appalled and terrified and ashamed of it or by it. And now that I've gone through a couple of years of thinking about aging, crunching the numbers, doing the research, traveling around the world, just immersing myself in the whole question, I've come out the other side with a completely different feeling and worldview. I am actually completely at ease now. I say that hand on heart. You know, I'm completely at ease with the idea of growing older. I'm looking forward to what's coming next, right? Because I know that what's coming next is going to be pretty amazing. If I go in with an open heart and an open mind, and I regard aging not as a process of closing doors, but of opening them, then I know that all kinds of incredibly good stuff is waiting for me. And I'm kind of looking forward to discovering what it is. <laughs> so for listeners who want to concretely implement some of the things and ideas that we've talked about today, what would be one action item or starting point or piece of homework that you would give them to begin? Sure. I, I give a couple of suggestions, and this is maybe more on the slow side of our conversation. I, I touched on this a little earlier with the to-do list and the not-to-do list, but I think it's so important to do less, right? You know, less is more. So look at your to-do list and just start cutting. You know, it might be two things. It might be one thing. It could be two things. That, you know, whatever it is, just start changing that conversation you have with yourself, moving away from yes to no and and yes to yourself and no to doing. So just try and find ways to drop, you know, drop one thing a day, let's say, you know, or one thing a week or something and just try and let more oxygen into your schedule. That'll be a first suggestion. A second has to do with technology. Love the gadgets. As I said before, they all have a red button on them. <laughs> it means off, you know, start switching off the gadgets, wall off time when you're not reachable, turn off your notifications, just anything that means that you're turning your smartphone into a tool again rather than a weapon of mass distraction, right? So find the way that it works best for you and just be off as much as you can in the circumstances of your life at the moment. A third suggestion is to integrate some slow ritual into your day. Just embed some kind of slow practice. So that's going to vary from person to person. It could be knitting, might be meditation, reading poetry, cooking, going for a walk, just anything that 
inoculates you, vaccinates you against the virus of hurry and acts as a break in what might otherwise be a fast day where you're at the mercy of other people's impatience and speed and just build it in. And you'll find that not only does it recharge your body and mind in that moment, but it will start to spread out into the rest of your day. And where can listeners find more about you, your work and your books online? That's the easiest question you've asked me so far. <laughs> it's just my website. Everything is there. It's carlhonore.com. So there's uh, video, audio. I've got an online course. There's Q&As and lots of information about my books. There's links to all kinds of groups that are working in slow and so on. So everything is there. That's a good starting point, a kind of clearing house for all of my ideas. And also I have a contact page where you can write to me and I get back to everybody love being in touch with people. I, I learn as much as I, uh, you know, teach. So I, I'm always happy to answer questions and be in touch with people. So don't hesitate to fire off an email through my contact page if you want to, you know, be in touch directly. Well, Carl, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom, some really great insights and some excellent practical takeaways for the listeners. Thanks. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.